We can often stop thinking about things when they become commonplace. Have you noticed that? When things become so common that you've thought about them so much, it kind of becomes off to the side. John 3, oh, I know John 3. I watch football. I know John 3.16. When things become commonplace, we often stop thinking about them. I was thinking about that just this week as I was hoping and wishing for a time when I can go fishing. I like to fish. I don't know if any of you are fisher, fishermen, fisher people. But I like to fish. I don't have much opportunity to do it anymore. On, on Sunday evenings after church, you may find me out here in, in the lawn in front of the church past practicing my fly fishing cast on the load, going back and forth. I just, there's something about it that I find soothing. But if you're not a fisherman, there's a lot about it that can seem very odd. I like to fly fish. Fly fishermen in particular are rather odd. There's a lingo that goes with it, and the, the flies that you tie often have very strange names. A silver doctor. It's a common one. A zug bug, black death, a buck and bunny. To a fly fisherman, these are all things which we understand what it means. We know what you mean when, when, when another fly fisherman says, I'm going to go fish with a woolly booger. We know what that means. But to a watching world, it seems very odd. Things can become so commonplace to us that we, we kind of lose our ability to see it as other people see it. And John 3 is one of those chapters. It's something that's so central to our experience as believers that we get to where we, we can't see it the way the world sees it. So I thought we'd take a little bit of time and look at it today. But as with anything, as with real estate, you know the three most important things in real estate? Location, location, location. The same is true with Bible study. The, one of the most important things about understanding a passage is location, location, location. Knowing the context, knowing when it comes, what comes before it, and what comes after it. So to understand John 3, we're going to back up just a little bit and read part of John 2 so that you can see the flow, the context in which Nicodemus comes to Jesus and talks to him. Look with me in John chapter 2, beginning at verse 13. John chapter 2, beginning at verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to to Jerusalem. You always go up to Jerusalem, by the way, no matter whether you're going north or south, you always go up to Jerusalem. So he went up to Jerusalem and he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated. And he made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, Take these things away and stop making my father's house a house of merchandise. The Old Testament gives particular permission for the selling of things at the temple. For pilgrims who come from afar and can't bring their offering with them for when they arrive in Jerusalem to be able to buy something which is approved for sacrifice. I think the Old Testament, Leviticus, gives particular 
permission for that to happen. So what angered Jesus about this? Well, I think what angered Jesus about it was in part where it was happening. That's in the court of the Gentiles. They'd filled up the only part of the temple where non-Jews could come with things which made their own worship of God more convenient to themselves. Their motivation was not to enable the worship of God. Their motivation was to make things convenient for themselves and to profit by it. The Gospel of John has this coming at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. You look at the cleansing of the temple in the other Gospels, and it happens near the end of his ministry, which leads some people to think that maybe he did it twice. I like that. At the beginning of his ministry, he goes to the temple and he is offended by a self-serving worship where there is no place for all to come. And then at the end of his ministry, he comes and does it again. It sort of bookends his ministry. Verse 17, his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for thy house will consume me. And the Jews therefore answered and said to Jesus, what sign, what miracle do you show us, seeing that you do these things? In other words, on what authority? Can you show us what authority you have? What gives you the right to do this? And Jesus answered and said to them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews said, well, it took 46 years. And that's 46 years so far. It was not done. It took 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. John elsewhere points out in this gospel and one of three very important passages on the role of the Holy Spirit, that one of them is to bring back to mind the words of Christ. They remembered that he had said this. And they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. Verse 23. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name. Beholding his signs which he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them. For he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to bear witness concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now there was a man named Nicodemus. That's the context in which John places the story of Nicodemus. After Jesus cleanses the temple, makes the point that all are willing, all, I'm sorry, all are welcome to come. But our own hearts are the biggest obstacle to our coming. Go from the cleansing of the temple to his comments Now he knows what is in man. He knows our hearts. And it takes us straight in to Nicodemus. 
So the context is the cleansing of the temple, where the point is that all are welcome to come. And the context is right on the heels of John saying that he himself knew what was in man. The point being that our hearts are our biggest obstacles in coming because they wanted to see, they wanted proof, they wanted signs. And Jesus was unwilling to entrust himself to them on those bases. So John chapter 3, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to him by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to Jesus, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you don't know where it comes from or where it is going. So it is for everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said to him, I'm sorry, what? How can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel? Do you not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak that which we know and bear witness of that which we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. If I had told you earthly things and you do not believe, how shall you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, even the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that whoever believes may in him have eternal life. Go back to verse 1. There was a certain man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, this man who had a reputation to be worried about, this man who had authority and influence, this man who had every reason to be concerned about what people thought of him. He was a ruler among the Jews person with position, influence, respect, named Nicodemus, who came to Jesus by night. Nicodemus was a real man, but in many ways he's every man. He was a real person, and this is a real story. But there's a Nicodemus in all of us. Part of all of us is concerned about what people might think. How it might look if we were to really follow after Jesus. There's a part of all of us that gets concerned about our influence. What will the neighbors think? 
There's a part of all of us that begins to question, well, that doesn't make sense. I want for this plan to be reasonable. There's a Nicodemus in every one of us whose question to Jesus is, what do I do? Like the rich man who came to Jesus and said, what must I do to obtain eternal life? He wanted to know what he could do. All of us want to approach God with a logic, worried about impressions and reputation and appearances. And Nicodemus came to Jesus by night so that he would not be seen. He said to Jesus, Rabbi, which means teacher, we know that you have come from God as a teacher. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So it's in a, in a sense, he understood some. He had some knowledge. He was right to see Jesus as a teacher. He was right in knowing that no one can do these things unless it is God doing it. But a little bit of knowledge is a dangerous thing. A little bit of knowledge is a dangerous thing. Nicodemus had eyes, so to speak, but he could not see clearly. Kind of like what happens in Mark chapter 8. Do you know the story of what happens in Mark chapter 8? You have the feeding of the 4,000. <laughs> Where he asks, how many loaves do you have? And they say seven. And he directs a multitude to sit on the ground. He takes seven loaves and breaks them and gives it to all of them. Few 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 small fish. And they all ate and were satisfied. And then in verse 11, it says, The Pharisees came out. Remember, Nicodemus is a Pharisee. The Pharisees came out and began to argue with Jesus, seeking a sign from heaven to test him. And Jesus sighs deeply and says, No. Why does this generation seek for a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign shall be given to this generation. And then leaving them, he embarked and went away to the other side, and they forgot to take bread with them. So do you see the picture here? Jesus had just fed 4,000 people with seven loaves of bread. And then they get in the boat and go across the lake without any food, and they're worried about what they're going to eat. They knew enough to follow Jesus. But a little bit of knowledge is a dangerous thing. As he was giving orders to them, saying, Watch out and beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began to discuss with one another the fact that they had no bread. So Jesus is saying, Beware the leaven of the Pharisees. And they look around and they say, Is he talking about bread? And Jesus, aware of this, says to them, Why do you discuss the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet see or understand? Do you have a hardened heart? Having eyes, don't you see? Having ears, don't you hear? And shortly after that, they go to Bethsaida, and there's the blind man that they bring to him and ask Jesus to touch him. And Jesus... It's that strange thing where he does where he spits on his eyes. You remember that? And he asked, do you see anything? He looked up and what does he see? He says, I see men like trees walking around. 
Then again, Jesus lays his hands on his eyes and looks at him and is restored and began to see everything clearly. And then right after that, you have Jesus questioning Peter. Who do you say that I am? Peter says, you are the Christ. And then Jesus begins to teach him that he must suffer and die and be rejected. And Peter says, no. So you have all of these examples of of seeing, but not quite seeing it clearly. The disciples knew enough about Jesus to follow him, but they didn't have enough faith that he would do what he's already demonstrated that he can do. You have this blind man who's brought to him, and Jesus kind of does a partial healing on him, and the man can then see things, but not really see them for what they are. It's sort of a picture of what happens with Peter next, where Jesus says, who am I? And Peter says, you are the Christ, right? He has some measure of spiritual eyesight. But then when Jesus says, well, I'm going to have to die and suffer, Peter pulls him aside and begins to rebuke him. And what does Jesus say to that? Get behind me, Satan. So even Peter had some measure of spiritual insight, spiritual eyesight, but didn't quite get it all the way just yet. And you have that also with Nicodemus here in John chapter 3. He comes to Jesus and says, Rabbi, teacher, I know that you are from God, for no one can do these things unless you were. So he has some measure of understanding, but it's not complete. It's not enough. And I laugh every time I read verse 3, because in verse 2, there's no question which is posed. Nicodemus just says, I know that you are from God. Jesus answers him. There's no question there. But Jesus answers him and says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Remember, this comes right after John telling us that Jesus knows what's in our hearts. And Nicodemus comes and says, Teacher, I know that you are from God. And Jesus right off the bat says something that he knows Nicodemus is going to have a hard time with. He goes directly to the heart of the matter for Nicodemus. And says, Nicodemus, you must be born again. You must be born again. And Nicodemus' reaction is, that's impossible. You want me to climb back in? It's impossible. John chapter 3 is difficult to kind of divide neatly into little preaching points. Because <laughs> it's not a sermon. It's a, it's, a, it's a conversation happening between Jesus and Nicodemus. But if I had to divide it, I'd divide it in two. And say the first 15 verses are about Nicodemus and the plan of reason. Nicodemus wants to understand how it is, what who Jesus is, what Jesus is doing. He wants it to be reasonable. He wants it to be logical. And verse 16 and following is about Jesus and the real reason for the plan. So if you have Nicodemus in the plan of reason, his main objection to what Jesus says about the need to be born again is that it's impossible. It doesn't make sense. This is not how things are done. 
How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Now, I don't know what Nicodemus's tone is here. I wish I could hear how he asks that question of Jesus. Is he saying, how, how is it that this happens? Or is he kind of mocking? Is he kind of saying to Jesus, how can someone do this when they're old? Or is it Jesus? How? I think I think his tone is probably less sympathetic than I wish it were to be. Jesus answers him and says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, I've read a lot about this verse, and there's a lot of really weird interpretations of this verse, of what is he, what he means by, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit. All, I've even seen things, well, the water refers to the, um, to the inability of our own hearts, and it's just really going, stretching it on and on. It's very strange. I think it's really a very simple thing that Jesus is saying here. Unless you're born physically and spiritually, you will not see the kingdom of God. And if you've experienced childbirth, you get the illusion. Unless one is born physically, the water there refers to the physical birth and the spirit being the second birth, the spiritual birth. They used to say up at our church in Michigan, if you're born once, you'll die twice. If you're born twice, you'll die once. Kind of catchy. If you're born once, if you're only born physically, well, you're going to die then twice. You're going to die, probably, in your physical body as well as spiritually. If you're born twice, if you're born physically and then you're born again, you're given new life in Christ, then the only death that you will ever experience is the one in your physical body. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So don't marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. But Jesus, you said this to him because you know he's going to marvel at it. He went straight to the heart of the matter. Nicodemus just comes and says, I know that you're a good teacher. And Jesus says something to him that he knows he's going to have trouble with. So don't marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. Where the wind blows where it wishes. I like storms. I really do. Um, I like it when there's thunder and hail and all sorts of dangerous things. Remember last week when we were supposed to have all those terrible storms overnight? They kind of petered out before they got to us, but the weathermen were on TV all night long anyway. I'm amazed at these weather maps that they can do now. They, they had this one map that showed it's color-coded, and it shows the direction of the wind. So that in one part of Louisville, the wind may be going east at 30 miles an hour, and you go a fifth of a mile north, and it's going the wind is west at 20 miles an hour. And they can show this on a map. They can detect that with radar. It's amazing what they can do to measure to observe what weather does. 
to observe what the wind is doing. You can observe a tornado. You can see the damage that it does. You can measure what the tornado is doing. You can even describe physically what's happening, why that wind is doing what it's doing. You may even be able to harness it and put up a windmill and make electricity out of it. But you can't cause it. It is beyond our control. And Jesus says, just as it is with the wind, so it is with the Spirit. This mystery which comes about of, of our being born again, being born of the Spirit, capital S, it's a mystery. You can see its effects. You can measure it in some ways with growth. You can look for evidences, but you can't control it. You can't cause it. And the implications of that are huge, both doctrinal as well as personal. If I have no control over the act of the Holy Spirit and giving someone a new birth, then how dare I judge the likelihood of who would come to Christ? We're looking at moving into a new building as a church and worshiping in a new context. And we're going to have people from all walks of life coming in and joining us for worship. We will be tempted to look at some of them and say, my time is probably better spent with him than with him. You cannot predict who it is that God will save. Our responsibility is to make sure that the offer of salvation goes out to all. The wind blows where it will. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Verse 9, Nicodemus answers and says to him, How can these things be? And Jesus basically says, Aren't you a teacher? Haven't you read? Don't you understand? In verse 13, he begins to explain how it is that he has the authority to claim what he's claiming and to do what he's doing, where he says, no one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven. Jesus is aware of his pre-existence before he wrapped his deity in humanity. Then he refers to the passage from Numbers that we read in our scripture reading, where Moses lifted up that brass serpent so that anybody who had been bitten by the serpent could look at the one being hung and be saved from it. And Jesus says, that's as it is with me. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Why? So that whoever believes may in him have eternal life. We've been through this passage twice now. We have no indication so far of Nicodemus' response to this. Where Jesus lays before him this astounding, unlogical, illogical, illogical, unreasonable claim that you must be born a second time. And we don't see Nicodemus' reaction Yet, we see Nicodemus two more times in the New Testament, in the Gospel of John. We see him in chapter 7, John chapter 7, 
where they're talking about Jesus. Look down now around verse 50. Nicodemus says to them, well, let's back up a little bit, um, officers and chief priests, Pharisees, um, ask these officers why they didn't bring Jesus to them because he was creating such a ruckus with his his claims. Some were calling him the Christ and some officers come and they go back to the Pharisees and say, well, why didn't you bring him? Have you been led astray too? Verse 50, Nicodemus says to them, our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he is doing, does it? It seems to me that Nicodemus may be still questioning things. In that passage, Nicodemus kind of steps into the middle of the other Pharisees who are wanting to kind of put an end to what Jesus is doing and says, well, we need to hear this man out. We need to hear what he is saying and and know what it is that he is doing. And we don't see him again until John 19. John chapter 19, after Jesus has been crucified, Verse 38, after Jesus had been crucified, they take him down from the cross. And after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate granted permission, and he came therefore and took away his body. And Nicodemus came also, who had first come to him by night bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes and a hundred pounds weight. seems by this point Nicodemus has chosen to believe. And rather than coming to Jesus by night, he's out there in the day, being seen as one accompanying Joseph of Arimathea to bury his body. It says that Joseph of Arimathea was a, a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one. You know, there's a word for that. There's a word for someone who is a follower of Jesus, but doesn't want anybody to know. It's been used for hundreds of years throughout church history. Do you know what it is? A Nicodemite. That's for Nicodemus, in case you didn't put the two together. And so you have Nicodemus in the plan of reason. He couldn't get past that obstacle that what happens when you come to Christ, the solution to your problem of guilt before God is a miraculous intervention of new life. Jesus responds to that by giving the real reason for the plan. Look at verse 16. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. You know that verse, don't you? A few weeks ago, this verse was all over TV. For reasons of utter nonsense, but it was all over TV. You know who Tim Tebow is, football player, Christian, grew up with a missionary family in the Philippines, right? 
Known for wearing John 3.16 under his eyes when he plays? Well, did you know that in one of his recent games, he threw for 316 yards? 316. Did you know he had an average of 31.6 yards per pass? 316. That's utter nonsense. But that's how the world views us with 316. The world thinks that all of this 316 stuff is a bunch of superstition. We quote John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. He just rolls right off the tongue. It's become so commonplace to us that a watching world says, I'm sorry, excuse me? What did you just say? That's superstition. That's superstition. For God so loved the world. If you realize that the root of your salvation is the love of God. I understand the theology of the atonement. I understand the theology of a penal substitutionary atonement. I understand how it satisfies the wrath of God. I understand how it's, you know, with propitiation and I've got, I've got the model all nice and neat in my head and I think I can, I can explain the doctrines of it pretty well. But what I can't do very well is answer the question of, but why did God do it? I understand the how now, mentally. I understand the how. But I'm still not sure I've come to terms completely with a good answer for why. Why is it that a creator, the creator God of the universe, all holy, all powerful, all knowing, all wise, who does not need anything outside of himself, he does not need me and my love. He's fine without me. Why? Why then would he choose to bring such humiliation upon himself? So that I can be forgiven for my rebellion against him. Why? The answer is simply that God loves me. It really is that simple. It really is that simple. The reason God has gone to such length. The reason that God has gone to such sacrificial length for your salvation it's because he loves you and if that doesn't cause you to drop to your knees before him to realize that this king has chosen you because he loves you And nothing will. For God so loved the world. Ephesians chapter 1 says that it's in love that he has chosen us. Romans chapter 5 verse 8 says that he loved us while we were yet sinners. You know that verse? But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 
It's not that it's not that you made some commitment to him and then God says, okay, yes, now I love you. It's while you were still dead in your trespasses and sins, while you were still a rebel against the king of the universe, God loved you and sent Christ to die for you. God so loved the world that he gave his only, his only begotten son. There's a concept I don't have. I understand historically, I understand eternally begotten of the father. I understand that, but I don't get it. <laughs> the scripture teaches that God is a trinity, father, son, and Holy Spirit. We have one God, but that God exists in three separate distinct persons. It's not that this one God reveals himself in three different ways, no. It's we have one God who is a unity, but that unity is also a trinity. Father is not the Son, is not the Holy Spirit, but they are all God, and we have one God. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, who was God. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life? And how does that happen? <laughs> he died in our place. He didn't then just clean the slate for us. He didn't just take out a divine eraser and begin erasing our sins, which he did. Those things are forgiven and the debt is paid. The punishment that we deserve has been paid for by the Christ who came to die in our place. But it's not just that. We were in Romans chapter 5 just a moment ago. Two verses later, Romans chapter 5, verse 10. Do you know that verse? For while, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? The life that we now have is given to us in Christ. What he achieved in his life is incredited to us. He did all of this for you because he loves you. Because he loves you. God did not send the Son into the world to judge it, but that the world should be saved through him. This is not universalism. Jesus is not saying that everybody is saved in Jesus. He is saying that to be saved, you must be in Jesus and that he is the only Savior the world has. So in that sense, he is the Savior of the world because he's the only Savior the world has. Context. Leading up to this, you have Jesus cleansing the temple, objecting to their convenient worship and their exclusion of the invitation for all to come. Then Jesus says to Nicodemus, you must be born again, but the reason it's possible is because God loves you. It's because God loves you. Not because you're a Pharisee, not because of what you've done, not because of your law keeping, not because of your status or your influence, or even because of your lack of it, if that's the case for you. But it's because of God's love for you. And then he demonstrates it. What happens in the next chapter? The Samaritan woman. So just a few observations and then we'll pray together.
A little knowledge is a dangerous thing. A little bit of knowledge is a dangerous thing. Do not be content to know John 3.16. Know the God of John 3.16. And because God is infinite, you will never completely plumb the depths of God. You will never get to the point where you can say, I now know this God completely. You can know that you're completely known by him, and that's a huge assurance. But a little bit of knowledge is a dangerous thing. Secondly, the Holy Spirit is necessary but unpredictable, so don't try to predict him. Third, God does not send his servants to speak of things uncertain or doubtful, but things which are sure and certain. Did you notice that in verse 11, where he says to Nicodemus, we speak that which we know. And we bear witness of that which we have seen. I don't know who the we is there. I don't know if it's Jesus and his disciples. I tend to think that. Be confident that God does not send you to speak to others of things that are uncertain or doubtful, but of sure things that are sure and certain. And he has told you to proclaim his love for all. That whosoever will, whosoever will, proclaim it broadly. For it's true and certain. Finally, the root of our salvation is in God's love. The root of our eternal life is in the life of Christ. So what do we take away from this? I think we take away from this. That we have lost our awe for God's love. I was reading this morning what someone had to say about John 3.16 500 years ago. And he said in there, people find it hard to believe that God loves them. I don't think that's true anymore. I think people expect to hear that God loves them. It used to be that if you went up to someone and said, God loves you has a wonderful plan for your life. The response might be, how could he love me? How could he love me? Today, I think it's, of course he does. He's God. God is love. It's what he does. Because we take that so much for granted, we've lost our awe for it. The love of God for us has become so commonplace that it no longer shines as brightly in our hearts. I encourage you to take some time this week, even this afternoon, and think about how God does not need you. Was he God before you came along? Yeah. Was he God before he created the universe and all things in it? Yeah. But he has chosen to set his love on you. On you. Personally. He has chosen to set his love on Emily. On Russell. On Jonathan. He has chosen. The creator God, all holy creator God of the universe, has chosen to set his love on rebels like us. 
Don't ever let that become so commonplace. That you find more fascination in the numbers of 316 than you do in the God who loves you. Let's pray. Father, we admit, we confess that we have been so comfortable in our place. That we have stopped marveling as we should that we even have a place before you. So we thank you, God, that you have chosen to set your love on us. We thank you that you have been willing to redeem sinners like us. We confess that we have at times sat in judgment of your method and thought that this is not logical. This does not make sense. We confess, Lord, that we have sat in judgment on the objects of your affection. We have thought poorly of those that you have come to save. We confess, Father, that we have become so comfortable in our worship that we have made it about convenience for ourselves. And we take such great comfort and assurance in knowing that you have proven yourself to be gracious and merciful and kind and loving toward us. And because you do not change, we can rest in that. Our hope, our assurance, our anchor the root of our faith, the root of our salvation, the security of our salvation rests not in our ability to keep it, but, Lord, in your ability to do what you have promised in us. So may we marvel that you have so loved us. We pray these things in Jesus' name.